As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. It's been tough for all of us to navigate our lives during the COVID-19 pandemic, but moms who are candidates for IVF feel even more at a loss because all cycles have been canceled till now. And slowly clinics are reopening and there are changes ahead. So this episode is dedicated to that. June happens to be World Infertility Month, so that's something that you can learn about and we'd like to promote awareness about on the show. I am joined by Dr. Anat A. Brower and Natalie Carpenter. Anat A. Brower, MD, FACOG, is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with extensive experience in treating all medical and surgical aspects of infertility. She serves as SGF, New York's IVF director. Dr. Brower earned her medical degree with distinction from the George Washington University School of Medicine. She completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology and fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell Medical Center. Prior to opening Shady Grove Fertility New York, Dr. Brower was an assistant clinical professor at NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Brower has published and presented at numerous national meetings on various fertility topics and is a regular contributor on a variety of women's health topics to local and national media. She's especially passionate about helping young patients with cancer build families, which has led her to serve on the advisory board of the Young Survivors Coalition. Dr. Brower is a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology and an active member of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Natalie Carpenter is an infertility awareness advocate, blogger, her website is fertilus.com, and marketing strategist who recently founded Well and Lux, which supports brands in communicating their purpose and authentically connecting with their desired audience. Natalie has 18 plus years of luxury brand marketing and communications experience with brands including Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari, Highgate Hotels, Grey Goose Vodka, Deuce Cognac, Crumbs Bake Shop, and Red Bull. Dr. Brower and Natalie, welcome to That's Total Mom Sense. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to start high level. Can you please explain what infertility is? Sure. So infertility is defined as the inability to achieve a pregnancy after 12 months of unprotected intercourse. And who is a candidate for fertility treatment? No, I feel like the first question really is who's a candidate for fertility consults? Mm. Yeah. And that's pretty much anyone. So whether you're 40 years old and you've been trying for two years or more, or you're 29 and just trying for six months, it never really hurts to just have a consult with a fertility specialist who can review your history, let you know if you need any fertility testing, 
which usually includes an evaluation of egg quantity, uh, status of the fallopian tubes, whether or not they're open or closed, um, anatomy of the uterus, and a semen analysis, which looks at sperm count and quality. And treatment and being a candidate for treatment really depends on testing. So, you know, for example, for like a young, like a 26 year old, if her testing is completely normal, I would usually recommend that she try for a total of a year before coming back for treatment, unless there's something wrong like a low egg quantity or blocked tubes or a low sperm count. Whereas in the case of a 40 year old, even if her testing is completely normal, she would qualify for treatment simply based on age and efficiency to pregnancy. So every case is different. And the first step is consulting with a specialist to develop a plan. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like our generation um, may be facing heightened levels of infertility. What can we peg that on? Is it diet, environment, genetics, stress, all of the above? Yeah. So I, I think first there's a distinction to be made between an actual rise in the rate of infertility versus a rise in infertility treatments. If you look at CDC memos, like even back from the 80s, you see the same kind of numbers quoted as one in eight couples are infertile, like the same numbers that are quoted now. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, since the 80s, there's been a tremendous surge in access to assisted reproductive technologies. Infertility is is spoken about much more openly. Um, you know, women no longer wait for their OBGYN to send them for a referral for their REI after trying to conceive for six months or a year. So many women are entering treatment much earlier. It's very hard to discern. Is it an actual rate of rise or is it just greater access to care? As far as factors that are kind of increasing women seeking fertility treatments, age is the single most important prognostic factor in achieving pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, women are waiting longer and longer to have children. And our biological calendars, which dictate that the best time to have children is in our mid-20s, is not necessarily in sync with our social and career calendars. Of course, diet, genetics, and environment play a major role as well. Um, and there's a lot of research regarding that, especially use of plastics, radioactivity, whether you're flying a plane or using a computer, et cetera. But age still remains the primary factor. Um, and can you shed light on what a fertility journey could look like for a patient? Sure. So the fertility journey is a very independent thing. So it really depends on what treatment you pursue. And Natalie will talk a little bit more about her journey. But you know, if you have unexplained infertility, meaning you've been trying for 12 months and you're unsuccessful and everything is totally normal, usually the starting point is some kind of a medicated what we call IUI or intrauterine insemination of sperm. So, you know, you take oral medication for five days. We follow you with ultrasound and blood work to see when a mature egg is coming up to ovulate. And we can actually trigger ovulation in time and insemination of sperm where we take sperm, concentrate it, the most modal sperm into a catheter and, and put it in the uterus through the cervix with help of a speculum. It's kind of like having a pap smear. It's very non-invasive. It happens to the, in the office. It takes about five minutes. And then you have a pregnancy test two weeks later. So, and, and patients will get pregnant on that, especially with unexplained infertility or if they have difficulty ovulating. But women who fail that treatment do move on to more invasive treatments, such as IVF, um, which is a, a much more involved process where we actually give you medication to grow multiple follicles. Follicles are just sacs of fluid that house eggs. And again, we follow you over a period of about 10 to 14 days and we monitor you with ultrasound and blood work to 
see that the eggs are growing. And when they reach a size that's consistent with maturity, we trigger the final steps of egg maturation. But instead of doing an IU, letting you ovulate and doing, telling you to have timed intercourse or doing an IUI, we take you for an egg retrieval, which is about a 15 minute um, surgery where we can actually retrieve eggs using a transvaginal ultrasound probe with a needle guide at the end. So that's that's like kind of a very high level look at what IVF is, whether you're doing that to freeze eggs or you're doing that to create embryos. And then of course, there's other options such as if you have a very low ovarian reserve or you don't have many eggs left or your eggs are genetically abnormal because of age. So as we get older, not only do we lose eggs, but the eggs retain age. So if you're in any of those categories and your eggs you know, just aren't working anymore, there's always options of egg donation. And same with you know, if you don't have access to sperm or if your partner has very, very low sperm counts that aren't achieving a pregnancy, you can use sperm donation. And if you have any significant significant uterine um, issues, meaning your uterus can't carry a pregnancy or you lost your uterus, you don't have a uterus anymore because you you were born without one or you had a surgery to remove it, or if you have a history of cancer that doesn't allow you to have a safe pregnancy or your ability to carry a pregnancy, then you can use a gestational carrier or a gestational surrogate where you can create embryos through IVF and transfer them into the surrogate. So a fertility journey can take many different paths and roads. And the first step really is to is to have the work up so that we kind of see what we're up against and develop a plan together. Wow. One curious point that, that I learned when I had uh, my kids and uh, my twins in particular was something we learned back in, you know, anatomy class. Uh, women are born with all of their eggs, correct? Correct. Yeah. And then when you uh, go through puberty and menstruate, then because the uterine lining is shedding, then you're losing your eggs starting then? So you're right. Women are born with all the eggs we'll ever have. So we have the most eggs we'll ever have in our mom's uterus. When we're about 20 gestational age, we have six to seven million eggs. By the time you're born, you have a million eggs. So you're already losing them in utero. And by the time you hit puberty, you have about three to 400,000 eggs. And then every month, your brain makes this hormone. It's called FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, that tells over to grow one egg. And that egg grows and becomes the chosen one to ovulate. And once that egg becomes the chosen one, it suppresses the rest of the eggs that month to go away, to die off. So every month you're losing eggs and there's numbers you can look at to see where you are in that ovarian reserve spectrum. It's part of one of the basic workups of, of infertility. One of those numbers is called AMH, anti-mullerian hormone, which is a hormone that's made by the small resting eggs in the ovaries. So the more eggs you have, the more AMH you make. So that's a really good general marker of how many eggs you have left and where you are in that spectrum of life of losing your eggs. Mm, Okay. Does the body release one egg at a time per cycle or multiple? And then it just depends on the sperm that impregnates one of them. Right. Most people every month generally ovulate one egg and then the rest of them that could have been the chosen ones that month kind of die off. Uh, When When we're doing IVF and we're giving, when we're stimulating patients to either do IVF or freeze eggs, the hormone we're giving them is actually FSH. So whereas your brain only makes enough FSH every month to grow that one egg, we're giving you through injectable medication, extra FSH to support growth of multiple of those eggs and not let them die off or starve off. That's like kind of the whole idea behind IVF. 
And some months, women, even in nature, will ovulate two eggs. And that's when twins that come from two separate eggs, which are kind of what is known as fraternal twins, um, that, that happens in nature is when you're ovulating two eggs in that month. Okay. And I guess that's what happened to me because I do have boy-girl twins. So it was definitely not a split a mono, right? Yep. It's Yeah, it was die-die. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Natalie, if you can, you know, shed light on your experience with um, infertility and your story. Sure. I started my, my fertility journey in 2013, really, right after I got married, when we were not not trying. In 2014, I realized that, you know, maybe I needed to just make sure that everything was okay. And from 2014 to 2017, I had five fertility treatments and five doctors across two states. My first two IVF cycles within that set yielded absolutely zero embryos. And that was very difficult for someone like me who is very type A. It's it's very difficult for everyone, but it was difficult that I, I couldn't, for some reason, will this to work. My third IVF, with my fifth doctor um, in a different state. Actually, it was the very first time I doubled the amount of eggs that I had. I had two embryos produced. One of them was genetically normal. And that genetically normal embryo is now two and a half years old. <laughs> Most That's recently, so I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So my fourth IVF to try for a sibling was actually begun at the very beginning of last year, I had all sorts of ideas and intentions to do a transfer if we had any embryos, which we did. Luckily, we had one embryo that was produced and was genetically normal. So we decided we were going to transfer in the fall. And just like life, a curveball, I tested positive for silent endometriosis in the fall of last year. And I had to go into an, an induced menopause to lower any sort of inflammation to give us the best sort of case scenario for my transfer, which I did just before the COVID-19 cancellation. Sadly, it did not take. I refuse to say that my my cycles fail because I truly believe that it's the science and all of the things that fail. It's not me. It took me a long time to get there. But in essence, if you're asking where I am right now, I'm in limbo. I don't know if I'll do another treatment. Right now, things are starting to open back up in New York in terms of clinics and the possibility to continue. I just am still on pause in my mind and, um, you know, I'll get there eventually. I know I don't have that much time left, but um, I have enough time to to consider what my next move is. Right, right. Thank you for sharing and and being so honest with us because there are listeners that are in similar situations and they're going to feel like they have someone in their corner hearing from you, Natalie. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So how has COVID-19 affected patients who, you know, are ready to start treatment or continue treatment? And where are they now? COVID-19 obviously has tremendously affected fertility practices across the country. Um, Here in New York, you know, Shady Grove 
Fertility New York. Effectively, we shut down our offices in March. SGF has eight different regions, so it affected different regions at different times just because of the peaks and valleys of the disease. We were one of the earliest affected regions. So we actually shut down our office even before ASRM came out with their guidelines. And, you know, the last six weeks, we've basically only been cycling non-elective cases. So any of my patients with uh, new diagnoses of cancer that had to freeze eggs or embryos prior to chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And as an organization have daily multiple conversations a day about about what plans are going to be. And only recently when ASRM kind of, when governments and ASRM kind of loosened up guidelines a little bit, were we comfortable slowly reopening with a very new normal? And that's very important to punctuate. This is not business as usual by any sense of the imagination. You know, we're definitely limiting cycles coming in, very different protocols in the waiting room, significant social distancing protocols, lengthening timelines of um, monitoring, for example. SGF always gives patients appointments for monitoring, but now they're like 15 minutes apart. There's very rarely two people sitting in the waiting room at the same time. Everyone's required to wear a mask, whether it's a patient or staff member, temperature checks. We're actually now discussing, you know, there's so many testing options out there and it's hard to know which are the most sensitive and specific, Um, but we're now most likely going to be rolling out a plan for mass testing prior to cycling. So we're kind of hammering out the details of that protocol. So there's definitely, and all fertility centers are going through this right now. Most people shut down, some stayed open with precautions, but I'm so happy to say that, that we are all very slowly starting to open back up and, and are able to start treating our patients again in a very safe way. Okay. I, are there any precautions that a patient should take given this time? Because, you know, there are definitely many in place for those who are delivering in hospitals with, you know, not having um, a partner present in in some states in the labor and delivery room um, and so on. So what are the the precautionary measures that patients are taking when going to clinics? Right. So most clinics are not allowing partners to come in. So I know that we're not, and and many of my colleagues aren't either. Uh, Most clinics that before you come in, so like the night before you have an appointment, you'll get a phone call with a questionnaire going through a series of symptoms that are COVID related. And also if you've had any exposures and if you answer yes to any of those questions, you, and hopefully patients will be honest, um, you will not be allowed in. If any of your patients have been exposed, and have tested positive to COVID, we do require documentation of a negative test before coming into the clinic. The CDC does offer two different versions of that. They have a test-based protocol or a symptom-based protocol. Um, We at SGF are going with a test-based protocol, meaning, you know, even if it's been two weeks since you've had symptoms, we still want to see that negative test before you come in the door. You know, I still strongly believe in stay-at-home orders and don't go out if you don't have to go out. Strongly believe in social distancing. This past weekend, it was beautiful in New York. There were a lot of people out in Central Park and parks all over, you know, running, jogging, and people aren't wearing face masks. And I think, or coverings, you know, it doesn't have to be a mask. So I think we owe it to ourselves and each other to continue social distancing and continue wearing coverings, whether you're a patient you know, in a clinic or not. Right. Absolutely. Have you encountered any 
of your patients who have contracted COVID-19 during their pregnancy and how does that play out? Yes. So we have had a couple of patients who early on before all the quarantine measures were in place did turn positive for COVID in their early in their pregnancy. Most of them were teachers. You know, it's interesting to note that while data is still relatively limited, you know, there's nothing in the literature that suggests that COVID is any more dangerous for someone who's pregnant than someone who isn't. And again, this virus is very young. It first was described out of Wuhan in November, December of 2019. So, and pregnancy is 10 months. So we don't have a lot of data, but so far everything suggests that that there shouldn't be anything different about this coronavirus versus any other virus in the coronavirus family, which we know is a known entity. The one thing that recently has come out that's specific to this virus, and again, we haven't seen it have an implication in pregnancy yet, as far as data, is this, this we have seen in non-pregnant populations an increased risk in, in hypercoagulable states. So that, that means people who have had the virus are, are presenting with phenomenon of clotting, whether it's you know, clotting in the brain as, as a stroke presentation, or, you know, you may have heard this quoted in other places, COVID toes, but they're calling it kind of a vascular. And so my question, and again, there's no data to support this, but my question has been, are we going to see some kind of um, presentation in pregnancy? Because we know that elevated risk of clotting puts you to higher risk of miscarriages. We haven't seen that with COVID yet. These are the questions that are kind of unknowns that, that we don't know the answer to. And so, you know, all the major societies have not told people not to get pregnant, right? So like ACOG and SMFM, that's the Society of, of Maternal Fetal Medicine, like the high-risk obstetricians, all of them have seen COVID as no, no more dangerous than having the flu. I mean, the flu is arguably actually a little bit more dangerous because temperatures or fevers are higher with the flu, and we know that can affect pregnancies and hospital admissions with the flu are higher in pregnant patients. For some reason, women, perhaps it's our immune system, but we, we haven't seen as sev the severity of COVID that we've seen in, in men. So there may be something protective and pregnancy is an immunocompromised state and COVID, the response of your body to COVID is really kind of your immune system having this very robust response to the virus. If you're pregnant, take all the precautionary measures, stay home, wear a face covering, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. How far has the science come as far as egg freezing and IVF on the whole? When did it start? When did your know, research and trials begin? And how far have we come? Right. So I think the two biggest advancements in our field is always moving very quickly. But the two biggest advancements in the past couple of decades really has been efficiency of egg freezing and efficiency of genetic testing of embryos. So you know, egg freezing has been around really since the 80s. The first impetus for egg freezing started out in Italy because, you know, the church only allows you to fertilize X number of embryos, X number of eggs to create embryos. It all comes down to like the religious definition of life and you don't want to have to discard embryos. So the Italians were very motivated to figure out what to do with all these extra numerary eggs and that would be to freeze them. The technology was then perfected uh, mostly in the United States and Japan. So there's two different ways of freezing eggs. The old way was called slow freezing, and the new way is called vitrifying or freezing them in a, in a glass-like state. It's kind of like flash freezing. The biggest issue with freezing eggs is that an egg is mostly composed of water, and if you freeze it slowly, 
you're more likely to form ice crystals, which actually damages the egg. Now with flash freezing, you're able to flash freeze it with very few ice crystals. So the, the technology really kind of took off in 2012 when ASRM lifted the experimental label and everyone started becoming very motivated to learn how to freeze eggs really efficiently. Shady Grove has been vitrifying eggs since 2009. Um, we actually have the largest published data set of babies born from frozen eggs, which was published in 2016. And we show in that study that there is incredible efficiency to pregnancy with frozen eggs. So that to me has been like a total game changer, not only for using your own eggs and freezing your own eggs, but also for use of donor eggs through egg banks, right? So there have been sperm banks for, for decades, but now that we're really good at freezing eggs, we can create um, donor egg banks where women can buy those just like they buy donor sperm. So that's one is the egg freezing. Second is genetic testing of embryos. So since the 80s, we've been able to test embryos for specific diseases. So, so the overall umbrella of genetic testing is called PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. And under that umbrella are two categories. There's PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, meaning if you're a carrier of a disease, like let's say cystic fibrosis, and your partner is also a carrier of the same disease, and now your baby has a one in four chance of having that disease, you can now test embryos for that disease. Separately, there's another category called PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening, which means that you can actually test an embryo for the number of chromosomes that it has. So we know that as we get older and our eggs age, they get more and more DNA mutations, which leads to an egg with the wrong number of chromosomes, which either won't fertilize, will fertilize and not implant, or will fertilize and plant and lead to a miscarriage. You can actually test the outer cell layer of an embryo that becomes the placenta and leave the fetal cells alone and get a report back a week later with each embryo and its chromosomal complement. And now you know which is the best embryo to transfer. So both the testing of the disease, which is PGD, and the testing of the chromosomes, which, which is PGS, has really taken off in the last you know seven or so years, and now has become a very efficient um, and much safer process. So those two technologies, the egg freezing and um, testing of embryos, to me, are the two biggest advancements and really game changers in the field. Absolutely. That's amazing. Are there reasons why you advise someone not to do? IVF or egg freezing or what have you, um, where it's just too risky? Yeah. So, you know, every case is is different, right? So when I evaluate a patient and talk to a patient and we come up with a plan together, you know, I always talk about risks and benefits, right? So, you know, it's all about success rates and that's the benefit. And then the risk is what is the risk to you? So for example, you know, if someone has a history of an estrogen sensitive tumor, you know, when those cases, I always defer to the oncologist. If the oncologist thinks it's not safe for her to cycle, I'm not going to cycle her. There's safe ways to cycle patients, even with estrogen-sensitive tumors, with things like letrozole, which is a medication that keeps your estrogen nice and low. But if it's something, if it's like a very aggressive tumor and her oncologist doesn't feel like she has time to cycle, I'm not going to cycle her. There's, you know, age limitations too, right? So the oldest published baby coming from autologous eggs is someone who used their eggs at 46. You know, I get it all the time, like a 40, you know, someone who's 47 wants to do a fresh IVF cycle with her own eggs. I always 
tell her, listen, your your success rate is well under 1%. And depending on what her ovarian reserve and all that looks like, is it really worth putting yourself through an invasive procedure um, for a success rate that's well under 1%? I mean, that's kind of how I look at things. Or if someone has a very, very low ovarian reserve, and she wants to cycle again and again and again, to me, the risk of repetitive hormones and cycles kind of outweighs the benefit of of the cycle itself. Yes, yeah. Um, Natalie, you have become such an advocate for uh, fertility awareness. So can you tell us how Fertilust was born? Sure. Fertilust is my blog that I created midway through my third IVF cycle before we did our transfer. And the reason why I decided to make the blog live is because I needed an outlet. I needed a place and a space where I could park all of my thoughts and ideas around what I was going through and hope that there was a group out there that could relate to me that I could relate to as well and really find a community because the first few IVFs and IUIs for that matter were all very lonely and the community had not grown and developed quite yet the way that it has today. So in that point of time, I just, I needed to live sort of anonymously and put myself out there at the same time to unburden the weight and really just to be able to have this other side of me exist while I was doing my corporate life and working and trying to, you know, overachieve in that domain because I certainly couldn't overachieve in the fertility world. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you have been featured in roundtable discussions in press, both on television and otherwise. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of talking about my experience, no matter how uncomfortable it can feel, depending on where I'm at, where my headspace is. I think it's really important because it has helped me so much, but I know from what I understand anyway, from others is it helps others feel that community and that they're not alone. It's, it's such a crazy space. It's not like I just was, you know, all in infertility awareness from the get-go. I really didn't know what I didn't know in the very beginning for quite some time, actually for years, about myself, about my own treatment, and certainly about how to find the community. The community exists now. It's not entirely transparent. So if you're not in it or you don't talk to people or look for it, it's it's not always the easiest to find either. But once you're there and you're in it, it's so incredibly powerful. I have met the most badass women and men through this process. And the media is truly an opportunity. And quite frankly, the stage is an opportunity for us to demystify, destigmatize what infertility is and how we can get through it, not only together, but we, how we can also support others that are going through it if it's not something that someone has gone through themselves. Yes, absolutely. Do you find in your experience that there is still a stigma around it or you know, are people feeling more open that, yes, I had my baby and it was IVF? Yes and no. I think yes, I think people are are definitely speaking up more because the burden 
is so great. And that release feels so good. But certainly there is a stigma around it. And I think there's a personal stigma that says, oh my gosh, at least for me, it was like, what's wrong with me? And then the other part is, I don't want anyone to know because I don't want to be judged. It's really us judging ourselves mostly, right? Because we're comparing ourselves to others. But at the same time, I didn't come out right away. It took me years and I didn't fully immerse myself in all of this until after I left corporate America because I didn't want to be judged for that in that space. I wasn't ready at the time to talk about it. I started talking about it a little bit more just as you know, in my last year in the, in the corporate world. But even then, every single time I would say the word fertility in front of a man, and I mostly worked with men, I would feel my, my face get hot and flushed. And I, you know, feel myself perspire a little bit. I mean, none of this sounds attractive. And I didn't feel attractive in that moment either. But really, that was so uncomfortable. And sometimes even now when I speak with, you know, a more mature generation or men, namely, sometimes when I say the word fertility or infertility, you know, I really have to like summon up that extra ounce of, of courage and strength to say it out loud because you know, I I still go back to my old triggers and trauma associated from hiding it for so long. Yeah. And you know what, there's so many of us out there that can relate. And the fact that you're using even my podcast and Fertilust as a platform to share and be open, it's destigmatizing as we speak. Thank you. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So June marks World Infertility Awareness Month. And I actually came across a great article that I'll link in the show notes on the Huffington Post that's 11 ways to support your infertile friends during World Infertility Awareness Month. And I think through our discussion, Natalie, you can certainly relate. And Dr. Brower, I'm sure you've seen this through your patients. But these are the 11 tips that I want to share with everyone. Number one, just listen. Seriously, just listen. Hear your friend out. Number two, give them a hug. It goes a long way. And yes, we're in COVID right now. So virtual hug and, you know, video call to help them through, you know, a tenuous time. Number three, admit when you don't understand. And I think that that, again, just shows how open and vulnerable you're you're being with your friends because none of us like when we have friends that are prescriptive. Number four, offer to accompany them on their appointments. You know, this is in a post COVID era um, where we can do that, but you know, having that support goes a long way. Number five, check in on them, ask how they're doing. Number six, don't try to solve the problem. Seven, choose your time wisely and know when to um, to reach out and when to give someone space. Number eight, don't avoid your friend. Nine, give them space, like I said, when they need it. Ten, don't suggest you should just adopt an 11 allow for the possibility that your friend may not get their happy ending, but be there for them. Anyway, I wanted to ask you both about your journeys through motherhood. You know, as you all know, the show is called that's total mom sense, because I believe as mothers, 
we have a built-in success. You know, it's just, it's amazing how it kicks in, um, maybe in the labor and delivery room, but it's just, you just know what your baby needs um, more than anyone else. So let's start with Dr. Brower. When was a time where you trusted your mom's sense? Sure. I have three little girls. I had my own infertility journey, which could probably take up a whole podcast. The one thing that really struck me about being a new mom is how hard it is. It's really just survival mode. And whether you've struggled with infertility or not, I actually find that if you have struggled with infertility, it's almost harder and you feel even more guilt because you worked so hard to have, you prayed for so long for this little baby that that now you're just having a really hard time. Like being a mom is just really hard. So my advice to anyone out there is everything you're feeling is totally normal. You know, it, being a mom is really, really hard. You can't just look at Instagram and Facebook and, and see that, that all your friends are snuggling up. Being a mom is hard. If you're having a hard time, find someone to talk to, whether it's a friend or a family member or a professional, but just give yourself a break. Tell yourself like, it's okay. I'm taking care of another human. It's something really hard to do. And just try to let the guilt go. Very hard to do that, but try. Yes. Um, Natalie, can you share a mom sense moment you had? Piggybacking off of what Dr. Brower just mentioned, I feel like the infertility and survivor's guilt is so great. It feels like I'm supposed to be grateful all of the time. Like grateful when my daughter is acting out and throwing a tantrum and like I like all I want to do is literally lock myself in a closet or a room or do anything else. But I worked so hard to get there. So like how can I actually be having these thoughts? So it's amazing to me how the guilt and the shame can use forever. It's it's normal. And I would say that every time I start to feel that way, I remember that one, I'm not alone in this. And secondly, like everything is going to be okay as long as I go with my gut for the small things, for the big things and everything in between. Like when I see that kid at preschool prep that looks like he's sick, it's probably not allergies. I mean, this was pre-COVID, but still, like maybe I, you know, just need to kind of keep an eye on those kinds of things. Like there's all of those things that bubble up all of the time. So yes, being a mom is the hardest job I have ever, ever done in my entire life. Right, it's so true. I wanted to share with you that I'm collaborating with an amazing foundation called Baby Quest. And Baby Quest Foundation is putting together a series of grants called the Resume Grants. And these Resume Grants are going to help fund the costs associated with women, men, singles, LGBT, same-sex couples um, who had treatments that were cycling mid-cycle or just started or towards the end and got canceled. And they are out significant, um, even minimal, minimal to significant funds. And that could be the barrier to getting them back into the IVF treatment game. So just wanted to share that that is an amazing resource for anybody who's listening that is, is had a canceled cycle, 
who is looking for hope, there is an opportunity out there that exists now. And BabyQuest and I put together our survey. We surveyed um, hundreds of people in the community. And now these grants are, are being put forth. Applications are being accepted now. And um, based on the interest and the funding, they're going to award as many as they possibly can. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you both live by? My husband tells me this like I don't know, every other day is control what you can control. Mm, yes, you have to kind of surrender to everything else. Natalie? Things happen for you, not to you. And my friend Claudia Chan is the first person who seeded that in my mind. I don't know if she's the originator of that, but I have had that on my mind ever since. And so every time I look at these challenges we go through, I look at them as it's okay not to be okay. And quite frankly, it's an opportunity for growth when we're up to getting there. Yes. And it's all about having that mindset so that you don't get bogged down by, you know, a fatalistic attitude. It's now time for Mom Hall when we share products we love. Do you all have a product that you're loving to share on our mom hall segment? So many. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. So my favorite, favorite things of all time right now, or just maybe not even right now, just in general is um, Nucifera balm. This stuff is amazing. I mean, literally you can use it as like a hair mask, like a super like hydrating moisturizer, deodorant, body balm. I think it has like antibacterial properties. I don't know if I just made that up, but every time I get a cut, I put it on my cut. Like I want it to be an extension of me. Um, Nature and Healthy Trinity Probiotics and The Class by Taryn Jumi. Awesome. Thank you. What about you? So I'm not that fancy. Um, (laughs) So my, my husband is a dermatologist. And so I have access to like literally every product you could ever imagine that he... But the number one product in our household, other than sunscreen, obviously, is Aquaphor, which I use as my lip balm slash lip gloss slash and I put it under my eyes like before I go to sleep is like a really thick kind of eye cream to prevent wrinkles. I use it for my kids when they have dry skin. I use it for my babies when they have diaper rash like this stuff is just like all over our house all the time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it's so multi-purpose, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. I want to just talk about something that's very necessary right now, the sanitizing wipes. And I discovered this brand through a friend and, you know, follow them on Instagram. It's called Softy and they're alcohol free and they contain vitamin E and aloe and have this like fresh citrus scent. And they're like any other sanitizing, um, disinfecting wipe out there. But I feel like, you know, I'm just, you know, like most moms, we want to steer clear of products that have the phthalates and parabens and, you know, all those ingredients that are bad for you. And this is one that, you know, fits the bill. So softy. Now I know my audience is wondering where can we follow you? So I have a blog called Fertilust and I can be found there. My favorite pastime is probably interviewing people and finding out their stories and highlighting what they're doing more than I am highlighting my own stories these days. 
but I'm going to get better about that. But Fertilist, F-E-R-T-I-L-U-S-T.com. And my Instagram handle is at Fertilist. And I'm on Facebook too. Awesome. Thank you, Natalie. And that's Natalie Carpenter. Um, and Dr. Anat Brower, where can we find you? Sure. So um, you can find me on our practices website. So that's Shady Grove Fertility. So www.shadygrovefertility.com. I am based in Manhattan. So um, our, our newest region here in New York. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram and that's at Dr. Anat Brower. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I am so thankful that we got to do a deep dive on this topic. I know there are women who are in the middle of cycles right now um, that are wondering what's to come. And then those who are just curious about what their options are if they're ready to you know, start a family. So I'm so glad that you cleared any misconceptions up and the fact that we're demystifying and destigmatizing what infertility is all about. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much. I can't thank Dr. Anat Brower and Natalie Carpenter enough. I am so thankful that they came on my show and they were so enlightening. Dr. Brower shed so much light on what infertility entails and the options that you know, men and women have out there, especially in this, you know, COVID-19 world that we're living in. And Natalie was so honest and genuine with her story. And I know there's so many of you out there who can relate and are just, you know, breathing a sigh of relief thinking, I'm not the only one. That's why we'd like to shed light on World Infertility Awareness Month this June. So be sure to follow the updates on social media and share because all of us together can destigmatize the taboo around infertility. Tune into other episodes and browse my YouTube videos and blog posts on my website, that's totalmomsense.com. If you have suggestions, I'll be including Dr. Brower's and Natalie's info in the show notes, so follow them too. And if you have suggestions for other show topics that are thought-provoking or polarizing, let me know. I would love to do a deep dive and bring thought leaders to discuss it with me. Write to me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. Remember, always trust your mom sense. Stay strong, super mamas. See you next time. That's Total Mom Sense.